1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. We're also going to be looking at Numbers 21 and Numbers 14. All right. If you've been with us, I think all of you have. You know, Paul has been talking about giving up our rights. Started way back in chapter 8 on the issue of, to these Corinthians, the issue of uh, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It was a big controversy. And Paul has basically come down on the side and says, look, you can logically do it. Logic says you can eat this meat, but love says you shouldn't. Don't stumble your brother. Paul has been going on this tangent for a while. And he has come to, last Sunday, he said, look, uh, we should be making our sla- ourselves slaves to all. Paul says, I, I make myself, even though I'm a free man, a slave to every person um, by curtailing my rights. Uh, to the Jews, I become a Jew. To the Gentiles, I become Gentile. And so on. All so that he might win souls. That's what Paul's all about. Tonight, we would come to chapter uh, 9, verse 24. And we're going to kind of blow through this because we're going to save it for Sunday. But it does set up uh, very nicely what we're going to talk about tonight, which is in chapter 10. Chapter 9, verse 24, Paul begins to paint a picture that would be very familiar to the, first, to the Corinthians. Um, Corinth, you, you guys know, was 30, 40 miles down the street from Athens. Athens, of course, was the home of the Olympics. Corinth itself actually had the second most famous games in the ancient world. And that was the Isthmian Games because they lived on an isthmus. So there were these Isthmian games, and just like Athens, they featured sports of great strength and endurance. And the last most popular event in these Isthmian games, as the Olympic Games, was the long-distance race, was the marathon. Read with me uh, chapter 9, verse 24, kind of get a running, <laughs> a running start. It says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. The word disqualified, that's the title of our message tonight. We're going to be looking at that previous section on Sunday. But suffice to say that Paul likens our Christian walk to a race. We we say that a lot, don't we? Uh, My Christian walk? Well, Paul would say, no way. Not a walk. It's a race. Paul would ask us tonight if we were the Corinthians. Well, or if he were sitting right here, he would say, are you in it to win it? Paul has been pointing out if you're in it to win it, if you're going to train like a, a runner would, You're going to be willing to give up some things. But tonight, our whole study is going to be wrapped up in that last word of chapter 9. Disqualified. Verse 27, let me read that for you again. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. September 24th, 1988, Ben Johnson. Ain't familiar? He astounded the world. Gold medal world record he ran the 100 meter sprint in 9.79 seconds faster than any man had ever run before the next day he was from canada the next day the toronto uh, star had the title in big you know bold print ben tastic or actually it was ben fastic get it because he was fast the day after that the very next day so two days after the race the toronto sun ran this title why, Ben? 
Why? Because he had been stripped of his medal and of his world record. He had been disqualified for steroid use. Think about it. All that training. Years and years of effort, of sweating, of truly beating his body into submission. And he tastes the victory that he'd been looking for for four years at least. And then it's gone. And all that remains is infamy. And he knew the rules, but he never thought he'd get caught. Paul says, verse 27, I don't want that to happen to me. Paul did not want, after he had preached to so many, to be disqualified. The word preached there in verse 27, it alludes to the guy at the Olympic Games. Uh, the word is Caruso, I think. And it's the guy who would, who would say, here's all the rules, guys. All the runners come up to the line. Here's the deal. Kind of like, like in a boxing match these days, right? Okay, guys, come up here. I'll tell you all the rules. No, no, nothing below the belt, all those kind of things. This was the guy who would lay out the rules. Paul says, how tragic would it be if I lay out the rules and then I myself am disqualified? Now, I've run a couple of marathons. I know you can tell. Got that runner's body. Now, I can tell you, without really surprising you, when I ran those marathons, I was not in it to win it. I was in it to finish that thing. I mean, if I could just finish. And I, I have the, the medal at home. It's pretty cool. I'm pretty happy with it. It's a Mickey Mouse head, but it's cool to me. But I can tell you that the one thing a runner does not want to see by his name on the board or in the paper the next day is DNF. Did not finish. That's where Paul's going here as we come to chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Paul's going to give us an example of a whole group of people that were disqualified. I put over the title of these, uh, these verses, Their Exodus, Our Example. We're going to see through the story of the Exodus how the people of God, God's chosen people, well, that's like us, they failed. They were given all these wonderful advantages. They started at the same starting line, and so, so many of them failed. This is an illustration of Israel's journey out of bondage into the promised land. The starting line, if you will, is the Red Sea. They've got the Red Sea behind them. It just closed in and swallowed up Pharaoh's army. The starting line then is the Red Sea. The runners, up to two million of these guys. There were two million Jews. Numbers says that um, there were 600,000 fighting men, men of fighting age. So between maybe the ages of 20 and 50, something like that. So when you account for wives and children and old folks, it would be easy to assume about two million Jews uh, left Egypt. That's what most commentators think. We're going to read through verses one through four. Notice the key word in verses one through four. Look how many times you're going to see the word all. All. This is a laundry list, these verse 1 through 4, a laundry list of the tremendous supernatural blessings, the advantages that God gave to these Jewish people. He gave the favor, there was the favor of God on all 2 million of them, all 2 million runners. If you've ever seen a marathon, it's like a mass of people going across that starting line. God had poured out his favor upon each and every one of these guys. Verse 1. Chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed under the sea. Excuse me, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. 
And that rock was Christ. Quick explanation of each one of these things, just real quick. Paul says, first thing, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, every person who called himself a Jew, could look back to their ancestors. Every single one of our fathers stood under the cloud, he says. What cloud is he talking about? I think probably all you guys know the cloud, the Shekinah glory. This was the cloud that led them from Egypt all the way to the promised land. And it was this amazing cloud because it was a cloud by day, gave them comfort, comfort from the, the scorching sun in the desert. But it was a pillar of fire by night, the, the coolest nightlight you've ever seen. Protection, comfort, but also guidance. Because what happened was when the cloud would go, they'd like, oh, there goes the cloud. I guess we're packing up. They would know where God wanted them to go because it was physically right there. What a wonderful advantage that these guys had. Direction, protection, comfort. When the cloud would move, they would move. This was an amazing advantage to all two million of them. Then he says, I would not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers passed through the sea. Well, probably no explanation needed there, right? Talking about the great miracle where God opened up the Red Sea and let all two million. How long did that have to be open for two million people to get through? And then when Pharaoh's army tried to pursue, drowned them all. This was supernatural deliverance. An amazing advantage that these Jews had. Now, verse two says all of our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What that means is they were identified with Moses, just like we are identified with Christ in our baptism. See, if you hadn't figured it out, Paul here for the Corinthians, he's building parallels. He's like, okay, they were all under the cloud. They all had guidance. Um, All these wonderful things Israel had, you guys have, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. See, all of Israel had been delivered from a cruel master in Egypt. All of you. All of us have been delivered from a cruel master, sin. All of Israel was directed by the presence of God. If you are a Christian, you are directed by the presence of God. He is available to you to be present, to give you direction. And so often we find it in his word. All of Israel was baptized or identified with Moses. Every single one of us who is a Christian is identified with Christ. When God sees us, he sees us through Christ. He sees us in Christ. That's how I can stand here and say, I'm a saint. It's because I am in Jesus. I've been baptized into Christ. Now look at verse three. It says all ate the same spiritual food. You're beginning to get an idea. These guys had some serious advantages here. They all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about manna. Most all of you guys know about manna. This was food, bread, that was sent literally from heaven. There were tons of it. It had to have been tons and tons of this food that came every morning so softly. They didn't know when it came. It just was here. And it was perfect, perfectly good and nutritious food. The Bible says it tasted like honey and wafers. Now, I don't know if you guys like baklava as much as I do, but that's... Okay, I could, I could handle this. I was listening to Skip Heitzig. He says to him, it reminds him of Krispy Kreme donuts. Honey and bread. He's like, imagine 
If you could eat Krispy Kreme donuts for 40 years and you'd never get fat, that's an advantage. That's an advantage, a serious advantage these guys had. Verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink. It says, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, there's a tr- traditional rabbinical uh, uh, story that they, these guys had, had passed down by now. Uh, we know that at least twice, when they were thirsty, Moses got water from a rock, Right? Um, the tradition goes that the, that the rabbis had passed down all through the ages was that this rock actually followed them. Like it actually followed them through the desert. So they would stop at camp and somebody would be like, uh, Moses, the rock's still there. He's following us. The rock is back. Whether Paul is confirming this physically, if he's saying, look, it actually did happen, or if he's saying, well, Spiritually, it did happen. We don't know. But the point Paul is making is that, look, Christ was with them. There's all sorts of of, uh, examples of Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. And if it was physical, then this would be another example. Christ was with these Jews. He was the water that refreshed them. You guys remember John chapter 7, verse 37. I'll read it to you. They're having a great feast. They're commemorating getting water out of the rock. It says on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was talking spiritually, but he was saying, I am the living water. Drink of me and you will never thirst again. You'll never be parched. You'll never feel like... You, you don't have enough. Now, the Israelites, all of them, we're beginning to see, had every advantage. I mean, the Red Sea closed behind them. It buried their past. How awesome is that? It defeated their enemy. They enjoyed supernatural protection, provision, direction, the very presence of God. Jesus had their back, literally. When the starting gun went off, they all had every advantage. Paul's point is that. Every single one of them had the same advantage when the gun went off. But look at verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, that's kind of an understatement, isn't it? You you can pretty much know that God is not well pleased with you if your body is scattered in the wilderness. But also, it's an understatement in terms of numbers. Do you guys, have you thought about this? If the starting line was the Red Sea... And the finish line was the land of Canaan out of the two million people that started. You know how many finished? Two. Joshua and Caleb crossed the finish line. Out of two million starters, all but two were DNF. Did not finish. Disqualified. Including Moses. Moses himself. Paul says, I don't want to be... After I preach to you, I don't want to be disqualified. Uh, In chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Paul says, do you not know? That's just a a page back. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Joshua and Caleb were two out of two million. They truly each were one in a million. Even Moses was DNF. 
We know that God let him go up on the mountain and see the finish line. But he never got to cross over that finish line in that life. By the way, this is a good place to notice to note that this isn't about salvation. It couldn't be. I mean, we're going to see Moses in heaven. So if he didn't cross over into the promised land, we're not talking about your salvation. We're not saying that you can lose your salvation. And when he's talking about not finishing, no, what's he talking about? He's talking about reaching your full potential here on earth. Actually doing what God had planned for you. The very most being used by him the way he wants to use you. Don't you think that was Moses' biggest regret? I mean, he's, going, he's in heaven. We, we know when uh, he meets uh, with Jesus and uh, Elijah on the mountain that Moses is doing fine in eternity, right? But on this side of eternity... Don't you think he was like, I can't believe it. I led these guys for 40 years and I was disqualified. I was not able to fully come to what God wanted for me. This also, by the way, is a physical picture, too, of what sin can do to you. Sin can actually physically kill you in this life. When we come to chapter 11, we're not far from it. Chapter 11, verse 30, in communion, you guys, we know this every, every time we, we hear it. Paul's, Paul says to these guys, he's rebuking them about their behavior in, in a communion. And he says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. The idea is that disqualification can be, well, your life is actually, your physical life is yanked from you. It's like, like uh, Ray Steadman says, it's like God saying, look, come on home. I, I can't trust you down there anymore. And I, and I keep getting a picture of if this, we're talking about a finish line. It's like my finish line was, was to be out there and affecting so many people. And all of a sudden, my finish line comes rushing to me. It's like, well, okay, I finished. But it wasn't exactly how he'd want me to. Verse 27, chapter 9, verse 27 again. says Paul says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He's saying here they had all the advantages. They were God's kids. And yet we see them strewn all across the race course, right? This is from, this is from Donald Trump that I got this. As I read it, it'll be even more uh, ironic. Donald Trump wrote this, says, recently a new study found that today's college students are more narcissistic and self-centered than ever before. I guess Donald would know that, but he's making a good point. He says, he says, the psychologists who conducted the research blamed the trend in part to the fact that the current generation of American parents are constantly telling their children how wonderful they are the whole time they're growing up. We need to, uh, this is from uh, the author of this book, we need to stop endlessly repeating your special and having children repeat that back, said lead author Gene Twing of San Diego State University. And then Trump writes, it's not that we don't want our children to think that they're special. It's just that we give them such an inflated sense of self-worth and we make them think they can accomplish anything and everything that they often feel they don't even have to try in life. They feel they can do anything without making much of an effort. You guys, this totally explains American Idol. How people think they can sing. They've been told their whole lives that they can sing. 
I'm, I'm joking, but you know what I'm saying. I, I think this is true. I tell my kids all the time, that's great. And I think you should as, as they're growing up. But the point is what, is, what are we talking about spiritually? Paul's saying, he's looking at these Corinthians and saying, you guys are like kids that have been told your whole life. You're special. You can get away with anything. You're God's kid. He won't care. Paul says, no, it's not that way. Paul says, you think because you have great spiritual gifts, these Corinthians had great spiritual gifts, that you're special. You think you can get away with it. You think because you're baptized, you're special. You can get away with it. You think because you take communion, drink spiritual drink, eat spiritual food, that you can get away with it. He says, you think that you will win the race, become the next American idol. You will win the race just by entering it. Paul says it doesn't work that way. That's exactly what the Israelites thought. Verse 5 again. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Forty years later, talk about a marathon. Forty years later, there were two victors. Each one of them was one in a million. The race course is strewn with bodies. Each one at the starting line had wonderful advantages. They had the presence of God, the provision of God, the protection of God. But it was their presumption of God that disqualified them. It was them thinking, oh, well, I'm one of God's kids. I can get away with it. Verse 6, Paul says he's not just trying to beat down the Israelites. Now, he's, he's saying, verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul says, these, the reason I'm telling you this, the reason these scriptures are in here in the Old Testament is for our examples. You guys have heard the phrase, experience is the best teacher. Well, the best teacher is someone else's experience. That's the, that's the most comfortable, that's the best way to learn. Too often, we only learn by our own experience. It doesn't have to be that way. We can learn by someone else's mistakes. Now, he says we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We usually, especially in this culture, we think of lust as only in sexual terms. But the word actually means to crave. It's actually, I think, verse 6 is an umbrella verse for verses 7 through 10. Because all of these sins have to do with craving. Verse 7, idolatry is what he talks about. That comes from craving, from wanting another God, not being satisfied with your God. Verse 8, sexual immorality comes from craving, wanting another bod. Get it? God, bod. Okay. It comes from not being satisfied with either the singleness he's given you or the husband or the wife that he's given you. That's what sexual immorality comes from, from craving. Verse 9, rebellion comes from craving, wanting more power. Verse 10, complaining comes from craving different circumstances. It's all about their root problem was a dissatisfaction, an ungratefulness with all of the wonderful advantages that we just talked about. God had given them all these great things. And they found themselves disqualified because they wanted something different. You guys want to do some interaction tonight? Because you're getting sleepy. We haven't done this in a while. We occasionally do this. Do something fun. Or do you want to just sleep? You guys remember the song? Um, Another one bites the dust. So when we get to certain sections, we're going to see we're going to see these Israelites disqualified for different things. We get to different sections. I'll go. Boom, boom, boom. 
could. And then, yeah, and then, and then Ben's going to go, ow! All right. Look at verse 7. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's talking about Exodus 32. You don't have to turn there. We, we need to move kind of quickly. But Exodus 32, the starting gun has just gone off. And it starts out this way. Exodus 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, he's going up to the Mount Sinai to bring down the Ten Commandments. He's been gone a while. They saw that he delayed. The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of, out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. See, they craved a God that they could see. Moses had been gone for a little while. Moses was their connection with God. They didn't have a connection of their own. But they craved a God that they could see or touch or feel. And you guys know the rest of the story. They come to Aaron. They're like, will you make us a God? Will you make us a golden calf? Before you know it, the calf is made. They are sitting down to eat and drink, have pagan revelry. And getting up to play, that's a very delicate way of saying they were having an orgy. Moses comes down from the mountain with the holy tablets of God's law in his hands. And he says to, Mo, to Aaron, what are you doing? And Aaron's like, you know, it was the weirdest thing. They gave me this gold and I put it in the fire and look out popped this golden calf. That was, that was Aaron's response. I threw it in the fire and look, it just popped out. See, parts of the story are comical. But verse 28 of that chapter is not so comical. It says about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 3,000 people fell. These were the first bodies to hit the ground after the starting gun went off. 3,000 of many more to come. This was like the first mile of the marathon. Boom, boom. Boom. They had every they had every advantage, you guys, but they wanted another God. They wanted a substitute. Now, chances are in America, chances are I would pretty much bet that you guys don't have a little statue that you carry around in your wallet. You bow down to you dance around. But maybe your idol is in your driveway. With leather upholstery and OnStar. Some of you guys are like, you haven't seen my car. I have no worries of that particular one. Or maybe your idol is in your living room, flat screen. Or maybe your idol is flesh and blood, like a relationship you should not have, or even something good, like a family member that you place before God. Anything that sits on the throne of your affection, the throne of your attention, the throne of your time, anything like that is an idol. Idolatry, we need to see, is one of the very first things that disqualified the Israelites. It cut them short. They were God's kids. They had all these advantages, but they chose to worship another God, to put something else before God. Look at verse 8. We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. Paul says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 
23,000 fell. Boom, boom, boom. You guys, good key there too. Numbers 25 is where we find it. Israel committed sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. You might remember um, that King Balak was trying to figure out a way to curse Israel. He goes to Balaam. He says, I want you to curse. Uh, long, long story, Balaam wants to curse Israel, but he can't. Um, and eventually these guys figure out, oh, well, you don't have to curse them. They can curse themselves. They can do it through sexual immorality. It says that the, the daughters, uh, the sons of Israel started dating, started marrying, having sexual immorality with the, the daughters of Moab. And if you remember the story, it took a, a man named Phineas with an, uh, a sword to run through uh, two people that were actually engaged in this sexual immorality to stop the plague. But the plague killed 20 4,000 people, Deuteronomy Numbers 25 says. Some people have a problem with that. They're like, well, it says, Paul says 23,000, but this says 24. That's, there's lots of ways you can explain that. But one is that Paul says in one day. Like, you read any story about a, a car wreck or anything, and you'll see, oh, well, the, this person, these per- people died on this day, the first day, and then there were others that died later. 24,000 people, 23,000 people. The point is a lot of people died. The point is that sexual immorality will disqualify you. See, just because God loves you, just because God provides all these good things for you, doesn't mean that you are immune to the consequences of sexual immorality. So we've seen two stumbling blocks, idolatry and sexual immorality. And that's already 27,000 people disqualified like that. Look at verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ, Paul says, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. There's a place you can turn. Numbers 21. Paul is taking us along this race, seeing all the people that were disqualified. Actually, not all, but a good chunk of them. Numbers 21. Read with me uh, verse 4. It says, Then they journeyed. This, of course, is Israel. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. It says that they spoke directly to Moses and to God. We're going to see this delineates from the complaining that we're going to see next This is not just complaining. This is rebellion. This is actually saying to the face of God, I can't believe you did this to me. I hate you for this. Notice that they call the bread worthless. Remember the bread? Bread is manna. It is supernatural, miraculous bread that God provided. Now, probably you and I, we can relate some here. I mean, every day it's the same thing, right? You guys know the Keith Green song, Mana Burgers, Mana Stew, Mana Cotty, Bamana Bread. You know, only so many ways you can make this stuff, right? They get tired of it, and they speak directly against Moses and directly against God, and they say these words, Our soul loathes this worthless bread. They were ungrateful, they were dissatisfied. This was bread from heaven. It was perfect in nutrients. 
It tasted like wafers and honey. This was a direct assault on God's graceful provision. He'd done amazing, wonderful things for them, and they weren't satisfied. Well, this hits home for me when I realized that Jesus said, I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Jesus claims to be our manna. Let me ask you, how often are you dissatisfied with what the Lord has given you? How often do you say, Lord, I know you're the bread of life. I know that you're all I ever need, but I want something different. And some go so far as to tempt God directly to actually say to him with their own lips to begin to blame him for their own dissatisfaction. Some people will say these words, Lord, why have you made me this way? Or this is your fault. Lord, you don't love me when, in fact, he loved you so much that he sent the manna, the bread from heaven. Now, I see these sins in some way as progressive. He says, don't lust after things. He says, don't be an idolater. Don't fall into sexual immorality. Because what happens is, here's an example. The lustful man dabbles in the idolatry of pornography. He experiments with sexual immorality. Then when he's enslaved in adultery or homosexuality or sexual addiction or whatever it is, so often that same man turns to God and says, this is your fault. You made me this way. See, that's that's dangerous ground that will get you disqualified. I mean, we are his kids. I don't want my kids talking to me that way. I mean, you you can talk to him that way at your own risk, because look at verse six of uh, first Corinthians chapter 10. Verse six says, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Boom, boom, boom. Think about how rude it is when you say to the Lord, you made me this way. I can't believe you did this. You make yourself like the servant, the five coin servant and the two coin servant and the one coin servant. And the one coin servant says, Lord, I knew you to be a hard taskmaster. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Basically, he's like he misrepresented in his own mind. He he thought that that God was a hard man and God says, look, if I was really a hard man, wouldn't you at least put this in the bank for me? The point is, when we blame God for the way he's made us, it's particularly offensive. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'd never talk to the Lord like that. I mean, I might complain, but I won't do it directly. Well, that's good. Verse 10 is for you. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says, nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. The word complain there, um, in the Old King James, it's murmur. And in the Greek, it's gongozo. And both of those words are like onomatopoeias. Because right when, when you want to, if you're doing an, uh, a scene on a play and you want people to uh, be murmuring against the, the king that they're going to kill him, you say just say murmur, murmur, murmur. Right? It's like, Numbers 14, turn there with me. These guys, these Israelites, all who started out with every advantage. Numbers 14, 
Moses has spent, sent spies to check out the promised land, the land that they're all wanting to get to. The time has, they've only been out like a, a month, maybe. This was going to be a very short trip. Moses sent spies to check out the land of Canaan. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but if they had taken the shortest route, it would have been in about seven days. The longest route would have been about 11. It took them 40 years, and we're going to see why right here. Moses sends these guys to spy out the land. Among them are our heroes, right? Um, what are their names? Joshua and Caleb. Twelve of them, 12 spies, and two of them are these guys. So they come back. All 12 of them agree on this one fact. They bring these amazing-sized grapes. Amazing grapes. How sweet the sound. They come back. They come back with this great report of that. And they're like, and the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. Everybody agrees on that. But the ten say, yeah, but there's these giants. And these guys are huge. And in, in their sight, we look like grasshoppers. Ten of the, the spies say, no way. We shouldn't go. They will destroy us. But Joshua and Caleb said, no, they are giant, no doubt. But God has given us this land. This is, what do we call it? The promised land. God promised this to us. Joshua and Caleb said, these guys are bread for us. We're going to eat them alive. Their, their actual words were, these are bread for us. But what they meant was, we can eat these guys alive. God is on our side. So that's the, the, the context. Numbers 14, verse 1. These guys are basically... Believing the ten. They're believing the ten, saying, oh, we shouldn't do it. I can't believe Moses is thinking about making us go and fight these giants. First, first one. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained. There's the word, complained, murmur. They complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They were in their tents having little meetings. Murmurings. Gonguzos. Risen, frizzen, Moses. Wilderness. Would have been better. Egypt. They weren't complaining directly to the Lord. Or to Moses, really. That sounds like me when I complain. Numbers 14, look down at verse 22. God's had enough. He says, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt, they all had these wonderful blessings at the starting line. They've seen all these things, the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and they have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain, there it is, murmur, against me? I have heard, all, I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing. See, they didn't think they, that the Lord heard. Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. 
all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in, but your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. And they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Boom, boom, boom. God says, you didn't trust me enough after all that I've done. You didn't trust me enough to go with this. You you think I'm going to kill your kids. Well, no, actually, your kids will enjoy this land, but you won't. They were disqualified. DQ'd, DNF, because they complained, because they were grumbling under their breath, because, and listen, because they didn't think God was big enough to handle the job. They said, they're giants. Our God can't handle it. I don't know about you, but this is convicting to me. Maybe you came in tonight with a giant of a problem, and what you're doing tonight is See, the thing that's really offensive to God is that you think he can't handle it. Is that you think this is out of his control. When you complain, when I complain, I'm saying to God, you should have done it differently. Now, what if God used this same standard on us tonight? Idolatry, sexual immorality, rebellion complaining boom 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 we'd all be laid out verse 11 says now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come you guys when it comes to history we're closer to the finish line than anyone has ever been these were these words were written way back in the Old Testament for our admonition that we might read this and go, wow, you're right. I thought because I was God's kid, I could get away with it. But I want to finish strong. The question is, will we learn from these experiences or will we only learn by making our own mistakes? Now, Paul doesn't end there, and I'm glad he doesn't. I don't want to end there either. We're just going to Real quick, real, real quick, look at these last two verses. Verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I had lost perspective of where that verse was. It's right after Paul says, look, you think you, you can do anything. You, could, you think that you can get away with pretty much everything. He says, no. If you think you're standing, take heed lest you fall. If you are convicted tonight, good. Because forewarned is forearmed. But if you are not convicted tonight, then verse 12 is for you. (laughs) Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, verse 13, real quick, there's some practical advice. And we're going to look more at this next time. We're not going to expand on it. But it's just so great because it's so easily understood that it's helpful even tonight to just look at it. Very practical, helpful thing. Four things to remember. Four things to remember, you guys, as you run your race. Even Donald Trump, as I was going through this list, he said, look, it was so weird because it's like, this guy's not a Christian, but 
he, he goes right from his talking about us being a narcissistic society to saying, look, we're all going to have obstacles. We're all going to have stuff that we need to face. The question is, how are you going to face it? Here's the point. When we're running our race, every single one of us, we're going to have obstacles. We will come upon stumbling blocks. We will face giants. Giants like sexual immorality. How giant is that a problem here? Giants like materialism in our culture. Giants like idolatry. When we start to wander back into discontent and want something else other than what God has given, verse 13 can help. Here it is. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That's the first thing. Realize you're not the only person that has ever felt this way, gone through this. Next one. But God is faithful. Man, you need to remember that when you're tempted. God is always faithful. Number three. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God never will allow you to be tested, to be stretched, to actually breaking. Now we're going to talk about this on Sunday. A lot of times we think we're going to be broken, but that's the way it always is in training, isn't it? You go to the point of exhaustion and then you're like, you recover and you find out I'm stronger now. And then the fourth thing, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The problem is so many people don't look for the way of escape until they're past it. Then they blame God. Right? If you find yourself in temptation this week, before we get the chance to look in these verses, just remember this verse. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, there will always be, there will always be a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul wants us to win. He doesn't want us to have that big D in F. He wants us to strive for that crown. And God does too.